global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with myself Alex Hochuli. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare who are away today. So in a recent episode we talked about the new scramble for Africa looking at European, US, Chinese and Russian interests on the continent. At the time we also promised we'd do more episodes on African countries this year and so here we are about to talk about Nigeria. So Nigeria to patronize you, listener, just a little bit, in case you don't know, has a population of 213 million, which makes it the seventh largest in the world, though by now it may already have overtaken Brazil in sixth place. It's the fastest growing of large countries due to overtake the US in population size before 2050. So Nigeria, in some sense, is or will be impossible to ignore. Yet at the same time, that upward population trend isn't matched by economic growth or seemingly any substantial measures in human development. So what I want to get at in, in this episode and ask the question is, could Nigeria be seen as, in some ways, an emblematic case, a testament to the failure of development, especially when it's so oil rich? Um, mm-hmm. So to, uh, to help me along uh, in trying to figure out this question, someone far more knowledgeable than me on these matters, is Saeed Husseini, a research fellow at the Center for Democracy and Development in Nigeria. He's also a contributing editor to Africa as a Country and one of the co-hosts of a new and brilliantly named podcast, The Nigerian Scam. <laughs> Welcome back, Saeed. Thank you for having me, Alex. Always a pleasure. So uh, you're you're joining me from not from Lagos but from Abuja. Yeah, um, I was just joking that it's kind of um, more boring but slightly more predictable of the main cities in in Nigeria. It's kind of the Pretoria or Brasilia of Nigeria. Um, you know, not a lot going on and very hard to plan a coup in. Um, you know, but also, <laughs> but also I suppose slightly more predictable. You know, um, for quality of life and that sort of thing. Right. I guess, yeah, it's, it's hard to mount a coup against from the outside. But if you're inside it already, um, then it's maybe easier to mount a coup. I mean, this is just me drawing from the Brazilian experience. Right. I don't know if it's the same. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, Abuja was specifically designed by people who had planned coups um, because it was kind of set up as an alternative national capital during the kind of highly coup-prone military era. And so they actually have done a somewhat decent job of making it making the streets like um, very sort of difficult to navigate insofar as a lot of streets are very identical and there's a lot of crescents and this sort of thing. So, um, and I mean, since Abuja has become the capital, we've not had a coup. So um, maybe they've succeeded, you know, architecturally, but I don't know. We'll see. I mean, <laughs> knock on wood, maybe. <laughs> right, right, exactly. All right. So getting into it, uh, Nigeria had an election Uh, two months ago. Since Nigeria returned to democracy in 1999, uh, the People's Mm. Democratic Party won uh, repeated elections. And this you can hear a little bit more about when uh, from an episode which we did back in 2000, 
19 with Saeed, um, which mm-hmm. you, is linked to in the show notes if you want to check that out. So in 2015, uh, just to kind of recap what we learned back then, um, the All Progressive Congress, the APC, led by Muhammad Buhari, defeated the incumbent. Um, which was quite a big deal at the time because it was the first time that the incumbent had been defeated. And when you were last on the podcast in February 2019, uh, Buhari was about to be re-elected. Two months ago, the APC won again, but now under uh, Bola Tinubu. And please correct my pronunciation if I, if mm-hmm. I mess that up. Um, so before we get to this year's election specifically, um, which was interesting because it presented this new face in the form of Peter O'B, which was widely discussed and covered in foreign media, I wanted to ask you about Buhari specifically. You have this very interesting piece in Africa as a Country, which came out recently. Again, it's also linked to in the show notes. In that piece, you argue that Buhari's victory back in 2015 was a product of the end of the end of history. Uh, so for those maybe familiar with the end of the end of history, but not so familiar um, with uh, the trajectory that Nigeria has taken, um, how, do you, how do you link these two things up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in that background you're spelling out, you talk about how uh, the PDP was in charge of the Nigerian state for the first uh, 15 years of Nigeria's return to democracy, which happened in 99. Um, and during that time, the PDP kind of represented um, economically a kind of mainstream or center-right um, option. So the PDP oversaw um, like a period of some degree of economic growth um, as well as continued privatization, basically pushing forward the project of structural adjustment that had commenced in the 80s. Um, and yeah, I mean, kind of prided itself on, you know, these sorts of liberalization agendas. Um, and r- right before it was challenged by uh, the APC under Buhari, it attempted to remove the fuel subsidy, which in some ways has been the last kind of crucial um instrument of state investment in, in the economy and of course the oil sector is mm-hmm. a crucial aspect of the economy in a context uh, like Nigeria which is oil dependent and so the attempt to remove the fuel subsidy in Nigeria really um you know an attempt that had been made several times before and had always been met with some degree of um, popular resistance the the attempt in 2012 uh, January of 2012, um, really brought the country to a standstill because we saw, um, you know, what has been referred to as the largest um, mass protest in since Nigeria's return to democracy, and um, that was also uh, kind of coincided with a general strike, um, and sort of momentum built up at that point in time uh, more than it had previously, really, um, to challenge that kind of. Um, liberalizing approach that the PDP had pushed forward. And in the midst of that, um, some aspects of the labor movement, some civil society organization and members uh, and leaders really of um, some of the existing opposition parties at that point came together to form the APC, uh, which, which, which then three years after the fact successfully challenged the PDP for power at the federal level. So, you know, that constellation of factors, um, a seeming challenge to, you know, the pre-existing kind of consensus around, um, you know, the need to continue liberalization, basically, 
um, seem to arise at a similar moment as you know the wider uh, kind of populist moment, I suppose, as people have referred to it mm. in, in Western democracies. Um, and so from that standpoint, I think, and also from um, you know the extent to which there was a sort of genuine anti-austerian impulse driving the um, resistance to the removal of the subsidy, the APC's emergence and victory did seem like a kind of, you know, our own sort of Nigeria's own kind of contribution to the wider sort of end of end of history moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I kind of explore in the article, I think that um, this challenge was fraught with a lot of contradictions, um, including the fact that in many ways, the APC did not really seek to present a real economic alternative um, mm. to what the PDP had set in place, despite a lot of popular aspiration, um, and even among some analysts, a lot of hope that um, you know the APC coming in at that point in time, driven by this kind of mass movement, you know, could kind of chart a different course for Nigeria. So in what ways did they really distinguish themselves, I guess, and mm. particularly in this last election, if they didn't really have a um, an economic plan which differed from, yeah. um, well, I mean, I guess they were they were running for, for re-election uh, effectively, even though under, mm-hmm. under a new face. Um, they, th- did they present something which was distinct in some way from the PDP um, yeah. maybe in terms which weren't economic? Yeah, I mean, so this then kind of, draws in a wider set of issues that factor into Nigerian elections, you know, beyond the economic question. Um, I mean, one cr- crucial aspect of that, that was the case in 2015 and, um, you know, also has become the case, although in a different way, in this most recent election is the issue of um, religion and ethnicity, you know, the issues of religion, and which are in some ways twin issues in Nigeria. And of course, you know, I think listeners will be aware that Nigeria has with very large Muslim and Christian populations, which, which are roughly evenly, evenly um, split. And, you know, as a result of this, or, you know, also because it sort of has specifically been mobilized in this way, it that th- these identities play quite a significant role in electoral mobilization um, and governance. And, um, one thing the APC represented as well in 2015 um, was the opportunity for the the Muslim part of the country, which I mean, the North is 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 the majority Muslim part of the country, to regain power or to have you know someone from that aspect of the country elected uh, after the PDP president Goodluck Jonathan had governed for the term that tends to be allotted. Um, in, for you know a Christian um, president in, in in Nigeria, um, and one thing to say I think that kind of gives this a little more clarity is that in the Nigerian context, um, political elite have developed over the course of uh, the past thirty years or so of elections a kind of informal arrangement whereby um, you know after we've had a couple terms of a Christian president or a Muslim president. Mm you would then alternate to the opposite, you know, opposing faith and, and region. And after the Good Luck Jonathan administration, we had had, you know, two terms really of a Christian um, president. So there was demand building up as well 
for this arrangement known as zoning to be respected. So that also fed into, um, you know, demand in some quarters for, um, you know, the Buhari uh, administration to, to step in. And the APC definitely leaned into that in various respects and portrayed Buhari as the sort of just alternative within this system of zoning. Um, and now, after Buhari has served eight terms, um, this election, I mean, one of the things all, you know, the, at, at least the APC and the, and the Labour candidate certainly kind of sought to um, portray about their uh, their what they had on offer was their, the fact that they were both Southern uh, candidates. So this sort of zoning question um, cont- has continued to play quite a, a mm. crucial role in, you know, parties, some of the ways in which parties have distinguished themselves in addition to um, the economic question. And in fact, in some respects, the zoning question has played a much more um, evident role than the economic one since, you know, in truth, the distinctions on economic terms have been quite minimal, you know, as I was suggesting. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you could say that that uh, is often the case, um, mm-hmm. maybe beyond Nigeria, when there isn't any um, real debate over how to organize society, that yeah, all of exactly. this into sort of identitarian conflicts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I, I suppose in some ways there, there is a kind of, um, slightly more statist orientation that the APC claims. Um, and I think this was one of the reasons why some analysts um, hoped that, you know, Buhari, the Buhari administration would provide some sort of alternative to neoliberalism because traditionally, um, you know, Buhari, who, by the way, had been in power previously as a military dictator uh, in, in the 80s, um, you know, he he sort of been associated with a kind of slightly heavier-handed management of the national currency, and um, you know, some some you know interventions on the side of the military or these these sorts of things, heavier investment in infrastructure. Um, and you know, Tinubu, who's his inheritor within the party, has also been uh, associated with a slightly more statist orientation to to, um, you know, managing the economy. So they will sometimes attempt to portray themselves as a kind of center-left alternative. Um, But, I mean, I think these things are a little overstated in the rhetoric Mm -hmm. when you kind of look more critically at what happens in practice when when they get in office. And from that standpoint, I think, yeah, the difference is, is, is really quite minimal. Right. Um, I mean, I don't want to spend too long on this, because mm. he was a defeated candidate and that and the election was already a couple of months ago. But so mm. much of the foreign coverage seemed to be excited about Peter O.B. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed like all the foreign reporting was talking about him as being uh, a new face, bringing youthful energy, offering renewal. I mean, none of this is, I guess, strictly true as O.B. is a kind of middle-aged <laughs> establishment figure. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, lots of people um, seem to be interested in hyping him up. So what did... Ob represent and did he was he able to t- to I guess um, touch on or or, or um, kind of grasp onto something that was happening in Nigerian society that other politicians yeah. hadn't been able to. Yeah, I think I'll start from the second question. He certainly did grasp on to you know certain aspects of or certain trends in Nigeria that I think eluded the others. One was 
or has been, um, I think, the extent to which the media, I, I think even the traditional media more so than social media, um, have increasingly played a larger role in shaping public discourse around electoral politics. Um, you know, so they, his campaign was much more media savvy, I think, and also social media savvy than than his um, competitors. So I think, you know, some of the, um, you know, kind of positive uh, pieces in even Western or international media reflect this, that they were just much more serious about um, a kind of media campaign. I think the aspect of his uh, approach that has probably been overstated to some extent and, um, you know, might have seemed different if it reflected in the figures was the extent to which he appealed to a sort of youth identity. There was certainly some of that, right? And he was clearly the favorite on Twitter and, um, you know, ad- admired by, you know, like young people, particularly in um, urban areas uh, like Lagos and kind of state capitals. Um, but ultimately, it didn't really seem like, as, you know, as the figures have come out from the election, there was much of a substantial youth participation that um, dwarfed previous elections. So mm. like you were suggesting, it really seems like a lot of that hype was was overblown and attested more to, you know, the savvy communications strategy they pursued than, um, you know, the real facts on ground. Um, yeah, but in terms of what he represented beyond these things, I think, um, you know, I've, I've talked about zoning and the fact that, you know, actually he was the only Southern Christian candidate on the ballot. Um, Tinubu, who is Southern as well, is, is a Muslim. So that, you know, he kind of um, challenges Tinubu, that is challenged the zoning um, tradition from that angle. Um, but also Tinubu, uh, Obi rather, seemed to present or seems to present a kind of um, slightly more austere, slightly less kind of embroiled in the oil sector, sort of state sector that's often been associated with corruption. Um, and I think, yes, you know, there's, there's some element of truth to that in relative terms, because, you know, Tinubu having been governor of Lagos and, um, you know, gained quite a substantial um, kind of wealth in in that process or since then. Um, and Atiku, the PDP candidate in the election who came second, uh, having been the vice president and been associated with um, a quite murky privatization process, are both kind of classic establishment figures in the Nigerian context. So, you know, set against these people, Obi definitely seemed, um, you know, much cleaner. Um, But Mm. at the same time, he was one of the names that appeared in the Panama Papers, you know, in Nigeria, and um, had served as a governor of a a state in the Southeast previously. So I think there was, you know, a very serious and very effective attempt to kind of repackage um, him. And, you know, it helped that he was then running against you know, two people who kind of barely even um, refuse when they're, you know, when when they're um, kind of identified with corruption in interviews and this sort of thing. 
Right. So I think I mean, all yeah, of these. It sounds like yeah. a recognizable, a recognizable phenomenon of a of a semi, yeah. you know, kind of a fairly establishment figure, but who can present as a bit of an outsider or clean or not corrupt or something. Who exactly. Is as a way to perhaps renew the establishment a little bit. Exactly. So I think all of these factors kind of contributed, uh, and then the fact that he was kind of running on a party that hadn't previously been, um, you know, like as successful on the national level, the Labour Party, you know, that seemed like you know, had the possibility of presenting something quite different and contributed to burnishing this image as a real outsider challenging the establishment. Yeah, so, I mean, in the end, the incumbent won. Um, mm-hmm. And back when we were talking um, in, we were corresponding in February, um, it was unclear exactly what was going to happen, who would win. And in the end, it, the, the election was contested. It was kind of chaotic. What's come of that, yeah. um, if anything? Yeah, so the incumbent party, the APC won, um, and the the PDP came second. So actually, you know, despite all the talk, um, OB actually came third, which, you know, leaving aside the polling prior to the election seemed that seemed to suggest, you know, he would do very well, always seemed like the most likely outcome, actually. Um, what's happened since then is that both the PDP candidate and Labour Party, you know, candidate OB have challenged the election results and are um, have gone to court really to, um, you know, contest the outcome. Um, based on the history of how these things go in Nigeria, it seems fairly unlikely that they would be able to get the results entirely reversed. Um, also, since the APC itself has has filed a sort of counter challenge, uh, you know, suggesting that it also has evidence of malpractice on the sides of, of the main opposition party. So, um, you know, that that will come up, the, the court hearings will come up in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, some of the sordid details of, of, you know, how the election went in various areas will emerge. But it seems very unlikely that, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, the election recalled or, you know, that's that sort of outcome, really. Um, yeah, so what then we seems most likely to happen is that Tinubu will be inaugurated um, on May 29th as, as Nigeria's new president, despite, you know, what really was, um, in some respects, a, a, a quite messy election. I mean, I think, you know, there, are, there were some pockets in places like Lagos and Places like the um, you know, oil-rich, uh, probably the oil capital of Nigeria, River State, um, where there was kind of outright voter suppression, like you know, lots of cases of manipulation or um, you know, ethnic profiling and and that sort of thing. Um, but actually, in most of the country, it doesn't seem like that was the case. I mean, of course. Like like I say, these things are in court, and we'll see a lot more once once that really kicks in. But um, by and large, it really does seem like um, you know the results did reflect a certain kind of trend, you know, in, in how Nigerians and how Nigerians cast their vote. Mm, interesting. I mean, I'm I'm curious what this actually means because I mean, you write two different 
things in in your piece, both of which are mm. interesting in their own right. Um, but first is that uh, uh, Tinubu himself in 2015 said that the PDP was a conservative elitist party believing in trickle, trickle down economics, whereas mm-hmm. the APC believes in the state's role in fostering development and in broad based growth. So first, I want to ask how true that portrayal is. I mean, of course, yeah. it's a portrayal made, you know, eight years ago. And the second mm-hmm. is, um, and here I'm quoting directly from your article, the victory in the 2023 election of the more market-friendly Tanubu camp of the APC suggests that after a half-hearted and ultimately abortive detour, Nigeria's end of history moment has resumed. So which is it, I guess? Um, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is APC a neoliberal party or is it something which is a little bit, um, at least a bit more reformist, um, what what are we to expect? Yeah, I think that. So, I mean, um, I disagree with Tinubu's pres- um, prescription, in, in, as as I kind of tried to spell out in the article. And um, I think that yeah, they do try to portray themselves as a kind of center left alternative. Um, and there's an extent to which they have sought to be statist in particular areas where the PDP has sought to be liberal. Um, but I think, by and large, they 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 have pursued just a, a slightly slower version of a lot of the same policies that the PDP has pursued. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, I think you know, and some APC people have even made this comparison that they kind of aspire to to, to look a little like the Democrats in the U.S., right? Where it's like, um, you know, at least from one perspective, a, a sort of um, attempt to make the existing neoliberal policy regime slightly more palatable. Um, and so, you know, that's that's where I'd start in, in my response. But, you know, the, the further thing to add is that what I was trying to kind of get at in the, in the article is that within the APC, there are sort of, you know, factions, right, as, as you know, is the case in a lot of political parties. And um, the, the Buhari one, which has been in power till now, um, has been, you know, informed by its kind of um, prior history in, in power as a military um, junta, has had a, you know, it's a, a, a kind of more sort of state-oriented approach in some sectors. So, uh, right. in the article, I talk a bit about um, currency management, where. Um, just historically, the Buhari approach has been to um, restrict access to dollars um, as a way of trying to shore up the um, the value of Nigeria's currency, the Naira. Um, so, you know, this, I think a lot of people took to mean that, uh, you know, the Buhari administration was going to attempt to, you know, kind of carve out a, a, a totally new path in in and give Nigeria a real sort of nationalist orientation. In practice, what it's meant is that it's just kind of slowed down devaluation in Nigeria. So, you know, the currency management um, has not been, has has been very partial um, and, um, you know, has not like really reversed the, the, the approach that the PDP had put in place, you know, which ultimately was kind of walking Nigeria down the path of devaluation. You know, so again, from these perspectives, it, it strikes me that what the what the APC, the you know Buhari faction as well has has represented is a sort of um, attempt to correct or manage, um, you know, 
economic globalization rather than to reverse mm-hmm. it. Um, the, the Tinubu faction, you know, on the other hand, I think has tried to present itself even within the even during the period when Buhari has been in office as the kind of more market friendly face of the administration. Um, you know, so the Tinubu faction gave Buhari his vice president, um, the uh, Yemi Osimbajo who was put in charge of the economic management team and um, whose primary task was to try to create an enabling environment for business, you know? So they kind of played this, you know, um, sort of good good cop, bad cop thing with the international market where Buhari was the bad cop and uh, Osimbajo from the Tinubu faction was the good cop. Um, you know, he would reassure the markets that, look, what seems like a nationalist policy is really... Um, you know, only temporary or really has these kinds of benefits for international investors sort of secretly baked in. So with Tinubu coming to power, you know, it it seems likely that even those vestiges of, um, you know, sort of, um, I don't know if you want to call it a a kind of like uh, cosplay nationalism that you've seen with Buhari will probably be swept away. Um, And Tinubu has made a lot of assurances to this effect. Um, I think the most crucial one is around the fuel subsidy, which, um, you know, the Buhari administration uh, or Buhari during his initial campaign um, seemed ambivalent about. You know, there were times when he would express what seemed to be brought some kind of support for the subsidy. Other times he would say the subsidy is, you know, is enabling corruption. But when he came into office, he did not act immediately, uh, you know, seemed to take a more gradual approach to to you know addressing the issue of the subsidy in practice actually the subsidy the, the price of petroleum has um actu- has has become much more expensive under buhari than it had under the pdp so while making all these gestures towards like you know nationalism and you know putting out fairly ambiguous messages about his orientation towards the subsidy in practice it actually has been removed you know so this is this is what i'm trying to suggest about the sort of dubiousness of of their their um, aspiration towards a kind of statist orientation, um, but you know, with Tinubu coming into power, it seems more likely, based on you know what he's even said, that he will dispense with the subsidy in a slight you know in a, in a kind of more nakedly liberal approach, and that mm. we'll see those sorts of um, those sorts of approaches replicated in other parts of the economy as well. I mean, that's interesting, I think, and will be interesting to keep an eye on, um, Mm -hmm. especially given uh, Nigeria's economic situation, which we're going to come on to in just a second. But just before that, um, to kind of finish off on the the kind of contemporary politics side of things, Mm -hmm. um, Nigeria had this social movement um, over the past couple of years called NSARS, um, which is not about severe acute respiratory syndrome, <laughs> syndrome about police. Um, yeah. Actually, now that I think of it, that that sounds like a fusion of the two memes about 2020 um, all in one mm. pandemics and and policing. But anyway, it's Indeed. not about pandemics; yeah. it's just about policing. So, why mm-hmm. don't you tell tell me about it? Sure. So yeah, NSARS uh, kicked off in 2020, as you say, as a protest movement um, against the. A, a special unit of the police, actually, that was that was known as the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, um, and 
while there had been previous protests actually going all the way back to 2017 um, against the SARS unit uh, because of its sort of notoriety and involvement in um, kind of very heinous, like, you know, um, incidents involving kidnapping, extortion, you know, extrajudicial killings, these sorts of things. Um, the 2020 protests were the largest by far, um, and they spread across the country, kind of starting off from from Lagos. Um, well, actually, starting off from this from the south south, but then becoming biggest in Lagos, um, and they seem to also draw on a kind of wider register of grievances, probably most keenly felt by young people in Nigeria who. Um, had, on the one hand, often been the target of SARS, um, you know, initiatives, and on the other hand, you know, had just seen their um, fortunes kind of decline considerably in recent mm-hmm. years as Nigeria has faced, you know, a lot of economic headwinds. So, um, you know, the protests seem to channel a lot of different, um, you know, impulses and kind of grievances as these things do, right? Um, what happened at the end of them? I mean, they, they kind of, I think, peaked or really, really um, uh, were at their thickest in October of 2020. And then towards the end of that month, they sort of dissipated um, after a clampdown in, in Lagos where the um, army was deployed to actually shoot into a crowd of protesters, you know, killing you know, wow. killing a number of people. Yeah. Um, you know, and at that point they sort of, they sort of dissipated. Um, but I mean, while the movement in, 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 in terms of protesting hasn't really reemerged since then, um, the kind of networks that emerged in, in the context of, of the protest, um, and it sort of, grievance certainly seem to have deepened um, since then. And I think this is the NSARS protests were very much part of the backstory to, um, you know, the demand for an alternative to the APC and even to the PDP that helped feed into um, the Labour Party and Peter Obi's surge during the presidential election. Um, but then the other thing to say about NSARS is that, unfortunately, while um, we don't. We no longer have a SARS police unit. Actually, th- a lot of the operatives of the former SARS have just been kind of reabsorbed into a new unit. You know, by uh-huh. that goes actually by a very similar name. Um, so, you know, in a way, the actual the fundamental aims of the protest, you know, in terms of ending SARS as such, um, don't seem to really have succeeded, um, and neither have the you know more kind of, fun, you know, the more kind of structural questions that the protests raised about youth participation, about, you know, um, improved economic governance and these sorts of things. And, um, you know, raises questions in, in Nigeria about what sorts of popular protests um, are most effective and how to actually, you know, respond to um, the possibility of state violence, which of course materialized in this in this protest and was part of the reason why they, you know, they had to stop. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's something kind of bubbling there, but it hasn't really taken any kind of uh, any political form that's had really any traction. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the fact of repression, you know, that, that occurred amidst the protest and even following in terms of, you know, um, surveillance and these sorts of things have, have only made that worse. Right. Um, so, I mean, turning on to something else which um, may uh, provoke protest. Uh, there's, mm. So there's this fuel subsidy, um, which you've already mentioned, uh, which mm-hmm. accounts for 2.3% of GDP. So it's, it's quite hefty. Um, and we're going to get on to Nigeria's debt problems, I think, just after this as well. Um, so, that, But I think it, this has been rolling for a long time, this notion that uh, this fuel subsidy could or should be cancelled, um, but, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been done yet. And I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough, enough about Nigeria or have enough of a sense of what's going on. But um, mm-hmm. it seems to me that the cancelling of a fuel subsidy like that um, would be pretty guaranteed to bring people out onto the streets. I mean, things yeah. like that have happened. I can think of other cases, you know, in Ecuador, for example, recently. Um, but, you know, all over the world, that and, and pension reforms are things that can be most guaranteed to bring people out mm-hmm. onto the streets and protest, it seems. Um, so what, what's the state of play? Is that going to happen under the net new administration? Well, I mean, the administration certainly wants it to and has, um, you know, actually Tinubu said during his campaign, whether you protest or not, I'm going to remove this subsidy. Um, you know, so fairly bold statement. Um, I think the, when it happens, though, and the way it happens um, are, are, are where the real questions lie. Um, so like I was saying, I think you know, even under the Buhari administration, we've seen the subsidy rolled back, um, you know, just slightly more subtly, you know, right, rather than a sort of outright cancellation, prices have just kind of crept up. Um, so, you know, I think we can probably expect some more of that. I mean, the Buhari administration has said that it actually wants to try to sort of strike the final blow before it leaves office, um, which I think Tinubu camp would really appreciate because then they can come in and you know pretend to be the the sort of um you know saviors um but i think that you know it, it, as you as you've said is 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 one of it it will almost guarantee a certain kind of political backlash right so even i think for an outgoing regime who's concerned about to some extent questions of legacy there will be some resistance to that so yeah i mean i think that they want to remove it um they will attempt to remove it, you know, but whether or not they'll try to do it in sort of one fell swoop or continue down the path of just sort of um, easing it off um, is what is what I think we're, we're not we're not we can't say for sure at this stage. Right, um, and I mean, I guess the motivation for this is mm-hmm. um, debt. Um, so, I mean, I, I was yeah. just reading up a little bit about this economic situation in Nigeria, and I'll share this with, with listeners, I guess, not for your benefit, Saeed, but <laughs> for <laughs> listeners, um, that uh, Nigeria's yeah. economy is projected to grow by an average of 2.9% per year over the next two years, which sounds healthy mm-hmm. enough, but it's just barely above the population growth rate of 24 yeah. Um So that means uh, it's expected that many more people will fall into poverty, I think something like already 40% of the uh, country's population lives in extreme poverty. And now you've got this situation, uh, which is a, a much more global phenomenon. Um, it's afflicting a whole number of low and middle income countries, which is uh, the, the amount spent on debt service has shot mm-hmm. up. 
Um, so now I think this year it's meant to be 96% of government revenue is going yeah. to be spent on debt service, which is up from 83% yeah. a year or two ago, which is already very high. But I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, all, of all the tax income, only four, you've, you've only got basically 4% to play with on kind of social spending or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so this is part of the background motivation, certainly, for for attempting to remove the subsidy. Um, I, and I think, yeah, you know, in addition in addition to that, I think, um, you know, there really in Nigeria has been a revenue problem for a while um, because a lot of government revenues have been um, dependent on, on, on the oil sector uh, and oil uh, receipts, really. And, you know, when the, meaning that when the price of oil at the international level has dipped, so have, so have revenues. So it's, you know, put Nigeria in a situation of kind of institutional instability, so to speak, right? Because, um, you know, like a lot of other oil-dependent economies, you know, the the the, the kind of international price really um, has such an immediate impact on the government's ability to fund its, um, you know, day-to-day function. So, yeah, I mean, I think what's we expect to see in coming months as a result of this is um, more debt. Because, you know, you're going to have to, you know, be able to fund short term expenditure somehow. Um, and, uh, you know, the government tries to justify this by saying, well, a lot of the debt is actually local and not international. So, hmm. you know, it means it's, it's, it's perhaps more, more sustainable. But then um, that doesn't, you know, make anyone that doesn't convince very many people partially because it doesn't appear like the debt is being invested productively, right? That it's, you know, instead of kind of going into sectors that can kind of generate, um, you know, revenue in the long run, it seems to be going primarily into sort of recurrent expenditure and this sort of thing. Um, So, I mean, in addition to debt, it it also looks like the government will make quite an effort in in the coming months to ramp up taxation as well. Um, and, you know, this is, I suppose, one of the areas where um, its Inubu administration probably slightly differs from um, a Buhari one or even that of his competitors, you know, in the past election. Um, because Tinubu, during his time as governor of Lagos, and even since then, while he's still been very active in um, managing Lagos politics as a kind of godfather, has made a reputation for himself as a kind of um, pioneer in pushing tax reform. Um, you know, so Lagos is one of the states in Nigeria that that manages to, you know, generate some level of, of, of um, revenue domestically. And, you know, actually most Nigerian subnational units are insolvent, except, you know, Lagos being one of the exceptions. So um, Tinubu, I think, will probably, you know, try to, recoup some of the revenue shortfalls through increasing taxation but um you know that that the way that will be distributed based on the the precedent set in lagos um seems to will will most likely fall on the backs of those who are kind of least able you know to shoulder that burden um relative relative to you know to larger economic actors right again, kind of drawing into question the sort of center-left um, kind of ascription that that the Tinubu and kind of APC um, people 
you know, seem to aspire to or, or try to communicate rhetorically. Right. And I mean, is there a sense of what the political camps are around this issue? Mm-hmm. I mean, both around the question of the debt as well as around taxes. Um, mm-hmm. Or is it or is it fairly confused? I mean, I, I know that, you know, with taxation, it often ends yeah. up the case that, yeah, kind of big actors are able to get off um, from paying taxes and it falls on the middle class. Mm-hmm. And then the middle class wants to not have to pay taxes because they feel they don't get mm-hmm. anything out of it. And it ends up um, combining to, to towards not um ever leading to increased tax take from the from the state yeah yeah no yeah i mean that's pretty much how it looks here um i I guess one interesting exception maybe to to the the regular picture in terms of um you know the political camps in nigeria is that even the imf uh, recommends that nigeria increases taxation um just because nigerian you know it's one of the places where the tax take is i think probably amongst the lowest even in africa um, you wow. know, just based on that history of of having these oil revenues and the state not wanting to go through the trouble of trying to, you know, um, potentially get imbricated in a social contract, you know, um, in, in the process of collecting taxes. So, um, yeah, but, you know, as you say, actually, where, where we expect to see some increases is in value added taxes and areas that, you know, much more directly affect middle class and kind of working and informal sector um you know uh segments of the of the population rather than um you know the the, fo- the folks who can probably most shoulder the burden so yeah i mean i think it is kind of that that picture you're spelling out there isn't a lot of um kind of opposition to it yet in 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 the kind of um elite spheres of, of the political conversation and also really not so much in the media um but amongst the sort of um trade union uh segments of the population and um you know amongst kind of informal workers there really is much more of of a resistance to increasing value added tax and such um another as area where there's some kind of political debate around this is between the state and the federal governments, because state governments want to retain um, some of the value-added taxation, you know, and kind of try to resolve this insolvency problem that I've spoken about. But the federal government itself is also quite broke, you know, and it's, it's, it's the federal government that's, um, you know, using 96% almost of, of its revenues to um, pay off debt. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I guess it does emerge as, as, a, as a kind of, confused picture but some of the elements you're talking about in terms of the likelihood of, of the burden falling on you know those least able to bear it are, are a, a trend that you know is is reflected here as as elsewhere yeah and i mean i wonder if there's anyone you know pushing for for even for default um as a solution mm. i mean i know that I, you mentioned that you were in, in ghana for six months and ghana mm-hmm. recently defaulted i think there's a headline from the ft ghana default puts domestic debt can of worms in the spotlight and of course this mm. is a this is very much a global issue but i wonder if um there's any there's been any sort of regional repercussions to this uh, how it's been seen in nigeria yeah. and, and vice versa well yeah i mean you hear very little talk of of that you know the 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 option of default in Nigeria, actually, um, even relative to Ghana, where um, you know the role of international finance institutions and foreign debt and this sort of thing features more in public debate. Um, you know, whereas in Nigeria, I think because of 
our size or at least the illusion that we you know have is really large i mean there is a large economy here but i think you know in terms of revenue and kind of government this sort of the government's take it's 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 probably seems larger than it is in practice um you know particularly in in context of low oil prices so because of all of these factors i think that nigeria is really trying to seem like a kind of grown up and sort of you know for lack of a better term a kind of goody two shoes for you know in the international um you know financial markets um so because of that you don't really the serious country right i mean exactly those terms but yeah no, I mean, sometimes even verbatim, right? So you really don't get that much of a, you know, political constituency around the possibility of default here as as you might get in Ghana, you know? Um, and yeah, that's, you know, I think the features of the of their varying histories that would be interesting to explore further. And I don't, you know, have all the details to hand, but that's something I definitely noticed, um, you know, while, while living there that, you know, people really challenging the IMF or the World Bank or international debtors, you know, their, their motivations, their interests, and these sorts of things will come up in conversation much more regularly than they do in Nigeria. Right. Um, so, I mean, we've talked we talked about debt. Um, and I, this, I feel like I'm talking as if it was like the 1990s or 2000s because <laughs> the big topics with mm. regard to Nigeria, but maybe Africa in general mm-hmm. were debt. And oil um, is the other one. So I think we can't we can't get yeah. away without talking about oil, even though it seems to have, uh, to a certain extent, disappeared a little bit from from the headlines. Maybe mm-hmm. under the impact of concern about climate change, that what Nigeria should do about its oil, how it can increase oil revenues, how it can stop um, you know oil theft and and mm-hmm. um, and also the vi- brutal violence in the in the Niger Delta and all the rest of this. It's something that doesn't yeah. seem to be as discussed as it once was. And what's your take mm-hmm. on this? No, I, I think you're right. Certainly in international um, kind of media focuses or discussions around Nigeria. And part of that is, is partially justified by the economic reality in Nigeria, which is that um, actually in that period of, of GDP growth that I was referring to under PDP, um, oil did diminish, the sort of contribution of oil to Nigeria's overall GDP did diminish quite a bit from kind of above 50% to under 10%. Um, so there has been some measure of diversification in Nigeria, which has kind of shifted the central role that, that um, or somewhat offset the central role that oil used to play. It's still very important, of course, but um, less so than before. So I think that probably partially accounts for um, the changing discourse. The other thing is that, yeah, I mean, because of the kind of wider environment where discussion is shifting to renewables and sustainability. I think the Nigerian government is also, um, you know, trying to somewhat downplay the extent to which oil is still very critical for revenue, you know, and for, for the sort of day-to-day functions of its, um, of, of government services and this sort of thing. And that's evident in the fact that when there is a problem with, um, in the Niger Delta, when there is a problem with um, you know, like dips in production, you have an immediate sort of impact at of, at, at the level of, um, you know, the federal budget at the level of, of, of revenue and such. So, I mean, yeah, it has shifted. It's, it's certainly playing less of a role, but it's still incredibly important. And, you know, in that respect, 
even though there there was there was some some diversification, there certainly was not structural um, structural transformation in that period where um, Nigeria experienced some measure of GDP growth. So, you know, it's unfortunate, but I think we are, you know, in some ways, really back as you as you suggest to a lot of the same debates that we were having in the two thousands because you know there haven't been fundamental changes that would that would allow us to shift you know beyond beyond those debates into a slightly different terrain. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it's it's still framed by the resource curse. I, I mean, and that's mm-hmm. the term under which it's normally discussed. I mean, it, this idea that, you know, the resource rents drive up the exchange rate, um, mm-hmm. which is bad for other industries. And there's volatility. And yeah. also it's its implication with, um, with, with corruption, effectively, with, with mm-hmm. politics being driven by private patronage rather than uh, the delivery of public goods. And is that still yeah. something that is that something that's discussed inside Nigeria in in those terms? Um, as you know that, yeah, that that yeah. Maybe they need to cut off the cut off the supply the, the funds of oil or make it more you know independently guaranteed or in some way um, yeah. take measures against the corruption which is fueled by by oil revenues and rents. Yeah, it comes up a lot for sure, and you know corruption, anti-corruption, you know, are certainly crucial parts of the debates around elections or just. Just in general, you know, in, in Nigerian political conversations, oil's at the heart of that. I think the conversation has shifted somewhat around the question of resource curse, partially because of um, some moderate success in, in in trying to push through diversification that I was that I was suggesting, right? So, you know, the the resource curse thesis applied strictly doesn't fully explain why you, you've nonetheless had some, you know, pockets of reform. Um, at certain states like Lagos, for, ex- for instance, that I, that I mentioned, or within certain sectors. Um, but it certainly is still a factor. You know, it's contributed, like, in, like you were rightly pointing out, to a lot of volatility and, you know, to, to the constant specter of, of currencies crises. So we talk about it in, in those terms for sure. And, um, you know, it, it certainly remains an issue and will will in the coming years um, you know, whether or not the subsidy is removed or, or you know, whether or not, um, you know, taxation does improve just because of, of the large role it continues to play. That's oil revenues in, um, you know, in providing, you know, resources for, for the government, for governments, you know, the basics of government functions in Nigeria. But so there's no like political drive from any camp. Uh, in Nigerian mm. society, to say, "Hang on, let's take control of uh, oil revenues and you know drive it towards uh, infrastructural development or uh, you know education, yeah. or, you know whatever." I mean, I mean, is that is that now gone yeah. somehow? I th- I felt like that was a, a kind of central question in in Nigerian politics, no, not only Nigerian it, politics. It very much is still present. In fact, I mean, it's it's kind of just become a background feature in Nigerian political conversation, such that no one can really take ownership fully of that issue. You know, like everyone talks about it, so it kind of has has almost disappeared, <laughs> right? Like all the candidates will talk about how we need to use our oil revenues more judiciously. We need to shift, you know, towards production. We need to diversify. You know, it, it's sort of, it's just kind of become part of the background home of, of political conversation. But, you know, actually practicalizing that has obviously proved a lot harder, you know, Um they have, you know, it's not to say nothing has happened in that direction, like I was saying, but um, not in a way that has led to some real 
fundamental structural transformations in the economy, um, partially for domestic reasons. Um, you know, there's a lot of resistance by the entrenched kind of oil interests. Um, there's a lot of resistance by the bureaucracy, but also for international reasons. Like, um, you know, it's not like um, global investment is kind of trooping into Africa per se, <laughs> you know, in, in large quantities mm-hmm. at, at this yeah. moment in time anyway, right? So what what, what would be the basis for that? I think um, is, 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 is a huge question that, for which there don't seem to be any obvious answers. And like, has the wider push towards renewables changed this at all? I mean, you know, if, if yeah. Shell is promising to shift, you know, entirely into renewables or whatever, um, yeah. you know, however, not, not, not really credible that is, um, yeah. does that impact the kind of centrality of oil in Nigeria's economy and politics? Uh, I guess the short answer would be not yet. Um, so there's, there's more talk about it. So the government even has a kind of, um, climate commitment um, that they've made to um, kind of decarbonize the economy over the period of, of the next you know few decades but we've not really seen that had a practical impact on um, the nature of investment so the government is still investing heavily in oil exploration in parts of the country that haven't been explored yet you know for instance in parts of the north of the country um, and you know, the government is is making a lot of efforts towards securing pipelines, towards trying to ramp up production, even, you know, in the in the historic oil heartland. So that conversation is there or is beginning in Nigeria. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the at the level of the at the level of the state, it really hasn't been practicalized. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess pe- yeah. petrol will still be petroleum will still be necessary um, for a whole range of applications not just yes. um, for producing energy. So yeah, indeed. Um, presumably it'll still remain central. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, to kind of maybe finish off this discussion um, talking about, well, I mean, I'll take your, your the title of your podcast as uh, as a plank to start this off from, uh, which is the Nigerian scam. You know, I mean, Nigeria okay. has become almost a byword for, for scams, for um, corruption, maybe writ large. Uh, what, how is this discussed internally? I mean, you've already mentioned that it's mm-hmm. obviously a wide, you know, permanent, kind of feature of discussion and everyone likes to portray themselves as anti-corruption and so on. Is there, mm-hmm. um, I guess there's a, a wider conception within Nigeria of, of this under this, um, the, this way that Nigeria is viewed, mm-hmm. but also I wonder how it, how that ties in to a kind of broader conception about governance and development, um, mm-hmm. whether it's discussed in terms of, you know, corruption, it needs to be put an end to, to help, to, to start kickstart development or if uh, development is needed first and then corruption will be um, erased as the country grows. What is the yeah. sort of state of discussion around this? Yeah, so it's evolved recently. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that when Buhari was campaigning in 2015, you know, right after the kind of major battle around the subsidy, the question of corruption was much more center stage. Um and partially Buhari also presented as a kind of, you know, um, pious figure representing alternative to the PDP's um, kind of overt, overtly profligate and corrupt approach. So mm-hmm. um, this possibility of an anti-corruption president really seemed much stronger back then. And there was a lot of public aspiration and hope around that. Um, when Buhari came to power, though, and, uh, you know, I think people, um, 
slow that he slowly kind of weaned us off of that desire and and hope partially because i mean the economic situation under the Baha'i regime has been so dire that people have almost wondered whether you know the anti-corruption fights you know to the extent that they've pursued one has has actually contributed to making the economy worse so you hear people almost say today that look i don't care about corruption as much so long as the economy is sort of functional you know to right. some extent again you know so so there's that there's that aspect of the conversation um but yeah i think nigerians you know um certainly feel and um you know probably even more so than the, is represented in, in in real terms a sense that the country is is you know desperately corrupt and like um a lot of the rankings that place Nigeria, pardon me, pretty high on, you know, corruption lists are derived from public perception. So for instance, you know, the Transparency International one, which I think is, um, you know, one of the main ones referenced, at least in public debate in Nigeria, yeah. is is derived from public perceptions of corruption. So I think no one thinks of Nigeria as more corrupt than Nigerians do, <laughs> you know, sure, um, would yeah, be one yeah. way of putting it. But, um, you know, so again, this leads to sort of perennial um, anti-corruption kind of movements or politicians emerging and people kind of placing hope in them. Buhari being one example, Peter Obi being another. And then, you know, that sort of sentiment waning when other slightly more pressing concerns emerge. I think one thing that we have been trying to explore in the podcast, and I think it's probably understated um, um, when it comes to this question of corruption in Nigeria, is the extent to which, you know, the what what the actual figures are and you know the extent to which they reflect um it, or or rather what the real scale of the issue is in 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 global terms or in relative terms and when you put things in kind of that perspective in terms of the actual figures you start to realize that um there's not a lot of money actually flow, flowing around in you know in Nigeria i mean one one estimate has it that nigeria's um, has had something like eight hundred billion dollars of oil revenue since independence. Um, okay, which is like a substantial figure. Some of which, you know, has probably been siphoned off. A lot of which has been invested into infrastructure, the building of the state, and all of that. Um, so it's out of that figure that we've had this sort of, you know, um, corruption cases or incidents that seem to define Nigeria's public image globally. But you think about it, $800 billion is U.S. military spending for one year, right? And that's like, mm-hmm. that's Nigeria's revenue from its independence till now. Of course, U.S. military spending is a lot, is, you know, is is, um, is, is nothing to, to sort of scoff at. But, you know, when you think of the figures in, in, in relative terms, it really does paint a slightly different picture and that there's an extent to which perhaps the perception differs somewhat from from the reality, you know, in practical terms, in a context where, um, you know, revenues are actually much less than they might appear to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I set this up by talking about the new scramble for Africa. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what China's role has been in Nigeria and how, in turn, Nigeria has positioned itself. It's true that China has been quite involved in Nigeria in the past um, 
two decades. And there have been some major kind of infrastructure projects, new airports, um, a rail system, a fairly ambitious rail system in Nigeria. And Nigeria hasn't had as much Chinese investment as you have encountered elsewhere in the country. Investment in, like I say, you know, the past 20, particularly, it's just then a question of how this evolves going forward, because of course, a lot of it has been debt fueled and increasingly this question of debt, um, you know, is, is having an impact on public discourse and um, you know, there are demands to kind of slow down on, on, on the debt-driven, um, you know, um, public services. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say how it will evolve, but it's certainly been a feature um, of, of governance here and kind of political and social life as well. And is, has that played out in, in domestic contestation at all in terms of one side being more of the kind of mm. pro-China side and one more pro-US or something like that? No, not really. Not really. I mean, I think both sides try to play a bit of a balancing act, um, you know, try to sort of, um, yeah, you know, try to kind of work with, with all and every willing partner, really. So um, you've not seen that kind of, um, you know, anti-Chinese sort of rhetoric emerge in the political um, contest, as you might have seen in parts of Southern Africa, for instance, right, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, opposition parties were, you know, were kind of explicitly opposing, um, you know, yeah, sort of Chinese investment or this sort of thing, or even Ghana, actually, there's more of a discussion in Ghana as well about um, Chinese immigration, uh illegal mining by kind of Chinese firms, kind of smaller scale firms and this sort of thing. Um, you get it to some extent with some unions in Nigeria, some aspects of um, the private sector pushing against um, Chinese investment in particular sectors or um, kind of advising caution in how the government engages with these loans and such. But by and large, actually, the political parties have been very welcoming. Um, and I think the way that the Chinese have approached Chinese government, Chinese state actors, and in particular have approached this in Nigeria is to also stay out of politics and be everyone's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it kind of seems like that's, that's, um, that's working pretty well for them so far. Very interesting. I'm, I wonder if that's not a, a facet to at least a certain extent of Nigeria's relative kind of wealth or size and importance mm-hmm. that it's not yeah. just kind of steamrolled by one larger imperial power or another or able to be completely bought off. Yeah, I think that's a factor and has and has been, you know, since, you know, it's sort of also how the kind of Cold War arrangement went, even if Nigeria kind of broadly speaking is generally more aligned with, you know, English speaking Western countries. I think we have tried to strike a kind of balance over time and um, that's that seems to still be the case with China. All right. Well, I mean, I wanted to finish this off by asking you maybe a bit speculatively about um, mm. the extent to which Nigeria's trajectory um, or perhaps lack of upward trajectory might be emblematic of uh, regional trends, you know, the mm-hmm. country being large and oil rich, much larger, of course, than its neighbors, but, um, but nevertheless, yeah. still, you know, stuck. Um that it that this somehow represents something more widely, and then also just to, yeah. just to finish off, whether there's anything kind of interesting going on in Nigeria that people should keep an eye out for, maybe more cult in cultural or artistic terms. Sure, yeah, I mean, I think where does Nigeria sit in kind of regional trend? I think yeah, that this question of debt um, 
unfortunately, the question of resource dependence, you know, they remain very relevant, I think, across, um, you know, West Africa, certainly. And I think actually in a lot of um, sub-Saharan Africa more generally. And, you know, you folks were right to point these these issues out and talk about, you know, the ways in which we really are seeing, um, you know, at the end of the, you know, huge chi- uh, China-led commodity boom, kind of a return to the, um, you know, conversation that we are having in the 2000s before there was all this excitement around um, Africa rising, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that trend does, I think, differ. You know, there's, of course, exceptions to that, right? There, there's some areas where, um, this, this, you know, you've had slightly more developmentally oriented states, um, places like Ethiopia or, um, you know, um, to some extent, Angola, where just, you know, some uh, resource revenues have been converted into some measure of, you know, local manufacturing, capacity building, and these sorts of things. So, I mean, there are countervailing trends here and there. Um, and actually, to tie to, you know, the, the, the other aspect of your question, culture has also been a huge driver of, of some measure of, of um, economic growth. So even in Nigeria, you know, the um, music industry that's now, of course, globalized, um, you know, where, you know, you can kind of uh, expect to hear at least one Nigerian artist in, on the radio in many countries in the world has contributed some measure to, um, you know, the the economic diversification I was talking about earlier, as has as have Nigerian movies, which, um, you know, I've not been a huge cons- consumer of Nigerian movies myself over the past few years, but I've actually been forced to watch some of recent because actually, you know, surprisingly, there's, you know, for, for, for people who are familiar with this sort of early 90s, um, origins of, of what's known now as Nollywood, you know, with um, sometimes very embarrassing kind of uh, special effects and sound and this sort of thing. <laughs> there's been, a, there's been um, quite a bit of an improvement since then. And, you know, you've had like a few um, quite decent movies and shows emerge, you know, on Netflix and this sort of thing. So um, maybe there's some hope there, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, one is tempted at the end of these conversations to try to point to some some hopeful, right. um, you know, aspect of, 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 of the trends we've discussed. And, you know, maybe there is there um, at least, um, you know, some, something to, to hope for. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's one area of, of Nigerian culture, society that has remained fairly vibrant, um, you know, where we've had kind of literary giants in the past and that sort of production continues to happen. Um, but in these new cultural areas of kind of music and, and movies, I think that, there's a lot of inspiring stuff happening and they probably will continue to be, hopefully will continue to be um, in the coming years. All right. Very good. Um, thank you very much, Zaid. Uh, I, I wish to tell listeners once more um, where they can find you, uh, your podcast. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I write um, most often for Africa as a country, occasionally for Jacobin as well. And um, I think on all the regular podcast platforms, you can find, the Nigerian scam. Um, we'll talk about, you know, issues related to corruption and such once in a while. But, you know, most of the time we're just trying to find some catharsis in the kind of um, Nigerian kind of crisis situation that we've just been talking about here. So, um, yeah, you know, check it out. All right. Very good. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you.